Isaiah 40 is, as we noted, kind of the first piece in the Messiah. It's a prophecy about the Messiah, and it starts with this promise of comfort. Comfort, my people. And we see there clearly in the first eight verses a picture of the compassion of God. But you know, without the greatness of God, God's compassion would be of relatively little use. You see, God's compassion without God's greatness means that God is a nice person, but he really can't do much for you. God's greatness without God's compassion means that God is kind of a distant dictator who's powerful and yet doesn't care about our daily needs. But God's compassion with God's greatness means that not only does God care about our needs, but his greatness means that he can actually do something about our problems. It means that we have a God who cares, but a God who is able to help in ways beyond what we could imagine. A God who is always good, who is always filled with grace and compassion, but powerful enough to bring that to bear in our lives in a way that actually makes a difference. So this morning, we're going to see that it's God's greatness that gives us strength. God's greatness gives us strength. And with that stage set, let's start reading. I'll begin reading in Isaiah 40, verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who bring princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, 
the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, this passage this morning leads us to a look at God's greatness. But the truth is that there's the, the real God, the God revealed to us in creation, the God revealed to us in Scripture. There are also the gods that we create. And so the first thing we're going to see or that Isaiah introduces us here is, to, is uh, what our gods are like. Verse 18, to whom will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it. You see, everyone has a God. Even people that deny or question the existence of God must live as if there is a God. You see, to say there is no God itself implies authority. It implies that there must be something that, that gives us the right to say there is nothing. To say there is nothing is to imply that there is something, some authority that, that defines reality. So we tend to respond to the idea of God in a couple of ways. Uh, one way that's common is to deny God's existence, to deny that he's real, to deny that he's active in the world. But a second way, and this is probably, frankly, where more of us struggle, although some of us may be in that first category, the second way that we deal with the idea of God's existence is to sort of create a God in our own image. So maybe there are things about the God revealed in Scripture and that make us uncomfortable or that we're not totally a big fan of, and so we sort of create things in our own image. But the tendency to deny God or to create a God in our own image is nothing new. It's the very concern that Isaiah says that these Israelites are doing here. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? And then Isaiah, because he's a normal person, he gets a little bit sarcastic in verse 19. He says, what are you going to compare God to? An idol? Really? I mean, let's think about this idol. And then he kind of describes the process. So first, you carve something from wood, and if you're poor, that's pretty much all you have, but, but if you're rich and you have kind of nicer idols, then you kind of overlay it with gold, and, and, and then you, you set it up someplace and you worship it. So let's think about this. You make something with your own hands, and then you worship the thing that you have made. Really? But we don't kind of interact with idols that way. As we were reading this passage this week as a family, um, you know, it's like, well, we, we could erect a statue, but in our houses, we typically don't do that. There are cultures in the world where that's still a common thing, but kind of in 21st century America, that's not something that we do. But we all have things that we look to to give us security, that we look to to give us some sense of fulfillment in life or something that really only God can provide, and we look to those things. I mean, we create things like careers, a career to give us some sense of fulfillment, some sense of security. Or maybe we look to children to do this. We long for children to give us a sense of, I don't know, a place of belonging. But the difficulty with this is that many of us long for a career only to end up feeling trapped in the job that we actually hoped we would get. Or we long for children hoping that children will bring us a sense of belonging, a place, someone who will truly love us only to one day feel like those, own, those children that we long for are running us ragged and we don't know if we can keep doing this. Or as they get older and they tend to reject us, someday, sometimes we long for their acceptance as sort of our place of belonging, and that's just a cycle that doesn't end anywhere good. 
You see, we don't build idols, but we construct them. We construct systems and people and hopes that sort of hold all the burden of our cares, all our longings and all our passions, and we hope that they, that they, can, that they can fulfill us. You see, the temptation is to replace the true character of God, as is revealed in his word, with something that can't hold up under the pressure of our hopes and expectations. And we place all our hopes and expectations on that thing that was never made to bear that level of expectation. And then it crumbles, and our idol crumbles. And along with our idol, crumble our hopes. You see, the difficulty, or the problem isn't that we're kind of good makers of idols, as in we're all woodcarvers. The problem is that our hearts are idol factories. That we craft our own idols and our own image according to our own passions. This is why your idols don't look like my idols. This is why your career aspirations don't look like my career aspirations. This is why your hopes for your family don't look exactly like my hopes for my family. Because the truth is that we all craft idols. We all craft hopes, passions, things to bear our expectations according to our own image. So our gods are created gods in our image, but the difficulty is our gods are also insufficient. They can't ultimately bear up under the weight of our expectations. They can't ultimately bear up under the weight of our hopes. So if this is what our gods are like, what is God himself like? And the text gives us different pictures of the character of God. We see the work of God revealed throughout this passage, but... But all in all, the main emphasis here is on the greatness of God. That our God is bigger, our God is greater, our God is more majestic than anything else that you can imagine. Now, we don't have the opportunity typically to interact directly with the God of the universe. You know, there are times in Scripture where we see him speaking directly. Of course, in the life of Christ, we see him even appearing in person. But most of the time, we interact with God as he is either revealed in his word or revealed in creation. Have you ever had a moment where you encountered something and it was so majestic that it just took your breath away? Uh, some of you recognize this valley, but a number of years ago I was traveling in the western U.S. I was in California and I went and visited this, this park called Yosemite National Park. And park doesn't do justice to what this is like. To stand at the, the entrance into this valley and just look down and just see mountains. And then here on the left, you see what's known as El Capitan. This, it's, it's a mount. People are crazy. They actually climb this thing and camp out on it for days to climb to the top. And I can just remember standing there at the age of 20 and looking out, and it took my breath away. Or just a few years ago, my brother got married in the state of Arizona. He married a girl from Phoenix, and while we're out there, we're like, we're not getting this close to the Grand Canyon and not going to see the Grand Canyon. Now, the thing about uh, Yosemite El Capitan is like you can see it from a distance. The Grand Canyon is the opposite, opposite of that. It's a hole in the ground. And so you're looking, and there's nothing, and then suddenly you walk out, and poof, your mind just blows. There's this space that's bigger than anything you can imagine with, with hues and colors. And as the sun moves on it, you see all these different layers of sediment and rock and the beauty. The reason they call it the Grand Canyon is because it's grander than other canyons. It's, it's big, it's majestic, it's beautiful, it takes your breath away. But these things are actually, they're somewhat well known. But uh, a couple of years ago, I was traveling uh, in the Middle East in the Republic of Georgia. Now, Georgia has no economy to speak of. It's very poor. The men there don't work. They wait by the side of the road hoping that someone will bring work to them. And I was here uh, on a teaching trip overseas, and we went up in the mountains to this little village. No one knows. It's called Signagi. And here on this 
on this mountain is a monastery. And this monastery looks out over one of the most incredible views I have seen in my life. No one knows about it. It's not the tourist center of anything. And yet God created this. You see, there are moments throughout creation that that reveal God's greatness to us. They can literally take your breath away, like standing in a strong wind or in a storm, and you almost can't catch your breath because the, the majesty, the greatness of God is revealed in these things. And Isaiah sort of does his best to help us see the greatness of God. He gives us picture after picture after picture to reveal the greatness of God to us. He takes us and he shows us Yosemite. He takes us and he shows us the Grand Canyon. He takes us halfway around the world and shows us something that we've never seen or ever heard of to reveal the greatness of God. I mean, look at verse 12. Who can take all of the oceans of the world and hold them in the palm of his hand? God can do that. Who can take the grandeur, the expanse of the heavens and hold out his hand and hold them all between his thumb and his pinky, what he calls a span here? Who can take all of the land masses of the earth and place them on his scales and see how much they weigh? God can do that. You see, all the nations, verse 15, are like a drop in the bucket. They're like turning on a faucet, allowing one drip to drip into the bucket of God's greatness, of God's sovereignty. All the nations of the earth, they're like a drip of water to God. They're nothing compared to the greatness of God. In fact, verse 17 says, they are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I mean, God treats the expanse of the sky like you treat your shower curtain, he says. He opens and closes it when he wants to. The mightiest rulers of the earth are like flakes, specks of sawdust to God. He blows on them, and they're carried away like stubble. We sit here this morning, and we sit on a giant ball that's spinning in concert with other giant balls, spinning, traveling throughout an expanse that we call space or the known universe. Well, the furthest edge of our solar system is two light years away. In other words, if you got in a car today and drove at highway speeds to the edge of our solar system, it would take you 19 million years to drive to the edge. Even in the fastest spacecraft ever invented, it would take you 37,000 years to get to the end of our solar system. But in this solar system, the sun accounts for 99.86% of the mass of our solar system. Now you see here kind of a graph, a representation of the sun, and on this sun is a dot in the midst of a circle. This dot is the earth. You are a speck on this dot. We sit here this morning. The sun is about 109 times the diameter of the earth and weighs about 337,000 times as much as earth. It's so large that you could fit inside the sun 1.3 million planet earths. Yet our solar system takes less than two years to travel across in the midst of our galaxy, which we call the Milky Way. Now, the Milky Way takes 100,000 light years to cross. Our solar system makes up less than two one-thousandths of 1% of our galaxy. In other words, to to break that up for you, it's 0.002% is our solar system. That's the sun and all the planets in our solar system. And the Hubble telescope tells us that there's our galaxy, the Milky Way. In addition to this, there are 100 billion galaxies. And scientists estimate that as our ability to measure the known universe grows, 
they estimate that there are over 200 billion galaxies. We sit on a dot, on a dot, on a dot in the middle of a solar system. Well, this is, gives us one idea of the immensity of the universe, but let's try to take another look at this. We're back here on planet Earth, on the sun, this dot on the sun. But the sun looks a little bit like that on the star Regal. Regal is the brightest star in the constellation Orion. It's a blue supergiant, the brightest star on this constellation, and yet Regal, compared to Canis Majoris, is rather small itself. Canis Majoris is the biggest type of star known as a red hypergiant. It's 4,892 light years from Earth and has a circumference of 5.46 billion miles. It's around 3,600 times the diameter of the sun. To fly around this in a jet would take you more than a millennium, 1,100 years to fly around this one time. And yet, I'm not sure if you can make it out if our projector is quite good enough. Yep, there it is. There's the sun, and there's Canis Majoris. And the earth on this scale can't even be represented. It's less than one, one, one thousandth of one pixel. You'd have to have a microscope to be able to make it out. And yet, what does Isaiah tell us? God holds all this between his thumb and his pinky. It's nothing to him. God is an immensely great God. You come here with knees this morning, and they are too big for you, too great for you. There's nothing that you can do about them. And yet, what is there that God cannot help with? What is there that God cannot do? It's, it's like the old joke about the 800-pound gorilla. Do you know that one? What does an 800-pound gorilla do? Whatever he wants. I mean, this is why Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. He can do whatever he wants. He has the power to help you. There's no problem that you can bring to him. There's no act of worship that you can offer him that is great enough to exalt the greatness of our God. Yet, Isaiah also says this God is infinitely wise. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? I mean, God's ways are so much higher than our ways. God is the source of all knowledge. And because of this, he doesn't have to consult anyone. He knows everything. His understanding is infinitely greater than ours. I mean, this God who is powerful enough to do whatever he wants, to do whatever he pleases at any time, has the wisdom to always do the right thing at the exact right time. Yet the reality is, we struggle with this. Could God really want me to lose a baby? Could God want me to suffer this miscarriage after praying so long and so hard for a child? Could God really mean for my spouse of 50 years, 60 years, could God really intend for that person to die after giving me this lifelong companion? Or maybe sometimes it feels worse than having a child die is having that child turn his back on me and everything I've, I've taught her. And that child no longer wants anything to do with, with me or with anything involving me. Could an all-powerful, all-wise God actually allow something like that? And here's the difficulty. God is infinitely great and infinitely wise 
and in these questions, we reveal the limits of our understanding because we really don't have good answers, do we? It doesn't make sense to us that, that God's goodness and God's greatness could allow this. And yet, what Isaiah teaches here is that God's goodness and God's greatness are so high, so great, that we can't truly understand why it is that he works the way that he does. Now, maybe we can't understand this kind of infinitely in relation to God, but if you're a parent of a middle school or teenage kid, you get this. Because one day you've got enough answers, and one day you became an idiot overnight. I mean, you know nothing, right? And in fact, there are all kinds of witnesses because all of your kids' peers, like their parents are the same way. They're idiots. It's like suddenly, you know, from the, from the ages of, I don't know, 35 to 50, somewhere in there, you just become stupid overnight. And, 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 there's, and there's no good answer. And this is a little bit like us questioning God, isn't it? Only infinitely so. I mean, if you're that parent, you kind of look at that and say, well, one day you'll learn or one day you'll know. And maybe even tell your kids that. Even though they don't believe you, you keep telling them the same thing. But, but the truth is, we do the same thing to God. God, you know, we're this middle schooler. We've got it all figured out. God, you got any answers for me? God, this is stupid. I have no idea why you do it this way. None of my friends' parents do it this way. And we kind of interact with God in this way, this kind of like this, this know-it-all. Like, God, this is, this is not at all how I would design the world. This is at all, at all how I would design my life. God, if you need any answers, I, I'm here for you. Uh, we, we're the answer men. We're, we've, we've got all the answers for God. Or maybe, you know, it's, it's the flip side, and your parents really do not have it figured out, and you're the middle schooler. You really are the middle schooler. So how is it that we reconcile God's greatness and God's wisdom with the reality that we live in a broken world, with the reality that all of our lives evidence brokenness? And what we must do in this instance is, is look at the character of God as, as it's revealed in the Scripture, observe the world around us, and try to make sense of this mess. We have to run by faith to the character of God as it's revealed in the Word of God. Your life will preach at you, God is not good. And yet the Word of God preaches to us, God is infinitely good. Your life will preach to you if, if there's this evidence of brokenness, God is not great. And yet what, what God's Word says is God is infinitely great. And so we run to the Word of God and we embrace by faith the character of God as is revealed in His Word and we embrace this and we preach that message to us. And what happens as we do this is that God changes our hearts. He doesn't change our circumstance, but He changes our ability to interact graciously with the circumstances that we experience in life. And that is a message that we can take to a broken culture. That is a message for our fallen hearts. God is infinitely great. God is infinitely wise. And when it's hardest for us to understand that is when we must go to the word and cling to what God has declared is true. Because not only is God great and wise, he is also infinitely caring. Verse 11 says that God tends his flock like a shepherd. He carries the lambs in his arms close to his heart. He gently leads those that are with young. It's God's power that enables him to be tender like this. We don't always think of power and, and care going together, but they actually do. In fact, if you've got young children and you hand them a drink, I, I was observing this recently with one of our kids. It wasn't even that full, you know, it's like that far from the top and they're walking like this. Why? So they don't spill a drop, right? But I was thinking, if I took that same drink and you handed it to me, I could walk like this. Why? Because I'm a little bit older, a little bit more stable, a little bit stronger. You see, it's power that enables us to be 
gentle. It's power that, it's power that enables us to, to take good care. It's why, you know, you see a small child lifting up his little sibling and it's shaking all over. You know that child's at risk because that, that child's not powerful enough to carry that other child. But God, God can carry the lambs in his arms and they're safe. God's power enables him to be gentle. He's a loving shepherd. God who knows the name of every star in the heavens. And his power means that every star is right where it belongs. And because of this, the God who can place every star where it belongs, we can know that there's not a sheep in God's flock that goes astray. There's not one. I mean, Jesus tells us if one goes out, he goes and looks for it. You can't run far enough for God not to find you. God created the universe. God, there's no place you can go and hide from God. There's no place you can go that's beyond the reach of God. None of his children go missing. I mean, who is like our God? He is truly incomparable, who is infinitely great, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and absolutely caring. Our God is amazing. There is no one like our God. And yet the difficulty for us is that when God reveals himself to us, there's a temptation for us to believe certain things about God's greatness. So the question is, what does God's greatness do for us? And the first thing we encounter here is the temptation that we're tempted to think that God's greatness does for us. Verse 27. You see, it's impossible for us to conceive of a being this great who would actually care for us in a personal way. I think this is in part because if we were like God, we would give us the time of day. I mean, if, if I had as much going on for me as God has going on for him, I wouldn't care about me. If, if I didn't need anyone... If I could get anything I wanted at any time, speak, create it. If, if I like, not only know the name of every star, but I keep them in place, I don't have time for someone like me. And so we're tempted to think the same thing about God. Verse 27, our right is disregarded by our God. I mean, with everything that's happened in my life, is it possible that God cares about me? If God is as great as he says he is, then surely I am too, too insignificant for him to notice. And to this, God gives one of the most beautiful answers imaginable. God is so great that he gives us his strength. God is an infinite store of strength, and so he can give power away, and it doesn't cost him anything. You have infinite something, you give it away, and you still have infinite something. That's the way infinity works. God is so great that he never grows weary in caring for his people. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. But God doesn't just exist in a vacuum for his own greatness. His greatness actually does something for us. It produces fruit. It produces goodness for us. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's a contrast here. God never faints. We faint. God never gets tired. We get tired. I mean, you take my little two-year-old. That dude runs and runs and runs and runs. If you lock him in a booth, as in like you're, you're in, a, in, a, in a booth with a restaurant, you got a parent on either side, poof, 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 it's like pinball. Lap, 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 lap. That, that's how he rolls. But you know what happens every night? He hits a wall. And he's out. 
Even the young people, even the ones with limitless energy, seemingly, have limits to their energy. But, but not God. God has no limits to his greatness. God has low limits to his strength, to his power. So how is it then that we get this strength? God, if you have this strength, if you have this greatness, God, I need this. How do we get it? And here is the hard part. He says we wait. God gives strength to those who wait on the Lord. And I ain't cool with this. God, I need it now. God, it feels like you're leaving me hanging. I mean, strength often doesn't come when we want it, does it? It doesn't come in this moment just how we want it. And yet there's this mysterious benefit as we learn, we see the character of God, and as we learn to wait for God's goodness, as we soak our mind in the character and greatness of God, by faith, God gives us new strength. Friends, trust in God and you will never be disappointed. Trust his character, his love, and he will never let you down. What he says is, you will rise like an eagle. Those who endure dark times but do it looking to the character of God, who do it looking to Christ, will never be disappointed. The grace of Christ will give you strength. You can fly like an eagle. So then how do we personally tap into strength like this? Because I have to confess, my life often does not feel like I'm soaring. It feels like I'm, I'm like wallowing through mud. So what, so what gives here? Well, we have to recognize that running in our own strength just tires us out. You can try harder, but trying harder just makes you more tired. So then what do you do? You wait. And you trust that the grace and strength of Christ are sufficient for you. It's the paradox that, that Paul captures in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That doesn't work for me, God. Your power needs to be revealed in my power. Your strength needs to be revealed by me being strong. But what he says is, when I am weak, then I am strong. So what's the metaphor here? The metaphor is of an eagle. How does an eagle fly? An eagle soars, right? It spreads its wings and then literally the currents of air, the currents of God's grace, carry this giant bird through the air. But we're more like hummingbirds, aren't we? we got these little wings. We flap, 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 flap. God, why am, I not, why am I soaring? And it's like, no, 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 no. You're missing, you're missing the point. The point isn't that God reveals his strength in your capability, in your effort, and your strength. The point is that God's greatness is magnified when he is the one clearly carrying us along. And sometimes you see this. Do you ever see someone who goes through a very difficult trial and you look at that person and you're like, she is amazing. That is amazing. What's happening? In that moment, the Spirit of God is breathing out His grace into that person's life. Because God's grace is enough to carry us through. You see, ultimately experiencing God's greatness is about realizing that we have no greatness ourselves. And resting, waiting because we don't have strength sufficient to meet life's challenges. Brothers and sisters, the road ahead is long, but those who wait for the Lord will have strength to meet life's challenges. But perhaps you're here this morning, you've never truly acknowledged your need for Christ's strength. You're independent, you're strong, you're mighty. But God's grace has always been revealed in weakness. I mean, Christmas itself is evidence of this. This great God who spoke all of this into existence lowered himself to become like the lowest scum of the earth, die on a cross, become weak and unable 
so that through his weakness we might become strong. If you're here this morning, you've never turned from your self-reliance to him, would you trust him? Turn from your sin and run to Christ. Some of us are here, we're God's children, but we're like your kids. We're just stubbornly learning the same lessons over and over and over again. We're learning them the hard way. By faith, would you trust his greatness? Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. Our God is great, and his greatness will give us strength. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a minute to talk to God quietly, personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. God, we thank you for your character as it's revealed to us. And I pray for those here this morning who are weary and weak. We ask, God, that your greatness would give us strength, that you will renew our strength like the eagle, that we will soar. God, I pray for those who don't know you, that they would trust you, that they would come to know you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to respond uh, to God's character, to God's revealed word uh, in worship now and in response. If there's a way that we can particularly pray for you or encourage you, we would uh, love to do that. We're going to sing about God coming down into our darkness, into our weakness, so that through him we can become strong through Christ. If you'd like to become a member of this church, uh, through, uh, through a part of this church through membership, we'd love to talk with you about that or follow the Lord in baptism. Or if you'd like to have any other conversation about Jesus, we'd love to, uh, love to do that. Would you stand, please? We'll sing together as we respond to the word.